Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, it's that time of the year where the holiday season is coming. That would be Easter for the Christians, Passover for the Jewish people, and Ramadan for the Muslims. On this program today, we're going to focus a little bit on Ramadan, the Muslim holiday. You know, the third most holiest site in Islam is the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem, or Harm al-Sharif, as they call it. Sharam Hadian will come to the program today. He's going to give us an in-depth look and something that is very concerning to Sharam, who is a missionary to Muslim people. He's very concerned that Christians are allowing Muslims to come into their churches and talk about Ramadan. We'll talk with Sharam today on our program, plus our regulars, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as he talks about the first of the four spring feasts that have been fulfilled and the three fall feasts that Jesus fulfills when Jesus returns to the earth. We're going to talk about that today on the program. I'm so looking forward to it, Rick. I'm still in Israel seeing everything that is going on, the center of everything, and I'm going to Jordan to Petra. That city, that impregnable city, the south of Jordan and the mountains of Mount Seir, where Esau went and became Edom in the mountains of Edom. Well, I'm looking forward to the program. Let's get started, Rick. We've got a lot to cover with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you as always, Rick. Well, Ken, the big news story of the week was a confrontation between a Russian jet and a U.S. drone. Can you tell us what happened? Well, the Russians have just upped the ante in this war, Rick. Uh, American forces were flying a very large Reaper drone off the coast of Crimea out over international waters, and two Russian jets approached it. They dumped fuel over it to uh, blind it. And then, Rick, according to the Americans, one of those Sukhoi 27s actually banged into the drone, damaging its mm. propellers and sending it down into the sea. Now, what Putin has just showed us that war is serious business. There's no more fun and games here. And I'm afraid that President Biden seems to think that this is some kind of video game. It is not. You cannot hide behind the fact that the drone was in international airspace. It was spying. It was spying on Russian positions in Crimea, and the Russians took that quite understandably as an act of war, and they acted as a responsible power would do in wartime. They took it down. Now, we can complain all we want. We can say, well, it was in international uh, airspace, but it doesn't get around those basic facts. And why was this important near Crimea? Well, that is where the Ukrainians reportedly are preparing this big counteroffensive that we've been told for months is going to take place sometime this spring when the snow melts. Well, Ken, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States and the thought that an incident like this could start World War III. Is that something we're in danger of here? Well, I think the Russians are being pretty careful about this. They are not carrying out those threats of nuclear escalation, which Putin made earlier this year. But you're seeing concrete escalation on the ground as the United States, by the way, escalates in dramatic ways. So the, the drone uh, conducting espionage 
on Russian positions in Crimea. That is a U.S. escalation. And now, Rick, I've been spending the past two hours looking at amazing YouTube footage that a friend of mine in Sweden uh, compiled and sent to me just yesterday of weapons arriving in Ukraine. Uh, let me just read you off this list so you'll see. Uh, on the 28th of February, Germany and Poland sent hundreds of armored vehicles to Ukraine. You can watch the YouTube of those vehicles arriving. Also on the 28th of February, hundreds of U.S. Bradley combat vehicles arrived in Ukraine. And you watch them being put on ships in the United States and South Carolina, sent to the Baltic Sea, and then by reloading up on rail cars to go through Germany and Poland. On the 1st of March, the Polish army sent M120 rack combat vehicles to Ukraine. Again, loaded them up on rail cars. On the 2nd of March, 80 U.S. and German armored vehicles. On the 4th, 88 German leopard tanks entered Ukraine's border. On the 5th, hundreds of Greek and Slovakian armored vehicles. U.S. strikers vehicles also the same day. Abram tanks arrived there on the 6th of March. So, Rick, this is a very long list of heavy weapons that the Ukrainians have been lacking. The real question I've got is not will they have enough weapons for this counteroffensive, will they have enough men? And that is a big if. Hmm, that is very ominous sounding when you list all that equipment and all that material going to Ukraine. It just certainly seems like there's an escalation coming. And Russia, I'm sure, is looking to strengthen their role with their allies. And one of their main allies, if not their main ally, is China. And the president of China, Xi Jinping, is heading to meet Putin. Uh, he certainly is. And this was announced just on Friday. Big deal. We thought that they were going to have some kind of Zoom meeting or video meeting. But no, she is actually going to Moscow. This is a big win for both she and Putin. The Chinese have been trying to pretend that they are a honest broker in this war, that they haven't been supporting Moscow, even though they have abstained at all those Security Council votes against the Russians. Uh, but this is a big deal. After the deal that she brokered with Saudi Arabia and Iran, the rumor here is that he is hoping now to negotiate a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. Now, is that really going to happen? You've got the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who said this week there will be no deal no ceasefire deal if Russia gets to stay on any Ukrainian territory. Mm. So this is going to stretch uh, President Xi's diplomatic skills to the limit, I think. But he's geared up for it after that big win with Saudi Arabia and Iran last week. Well, it certainly does seem like he is relishing this role. He wants to be the main peace broker, the main power broker in the world today. He's had, as you said, success in Iran, maybe some success coming in Russia, it looks like China and not America is going to be the main peace broker in the world today. Well, and, and that is something that should worry American uh, diplomats. It should worry American policymakers. It should worry Joe Biden. It should get him to actually pay attention to the consequences of his actions or his lack of actions. Uh, allowing China to broker this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran is a complete disaster. It never should have happened. But instead, Biden, by shunning the Saudis and not squeezing the Iranians harder, basically allowed President Xi to just come in there between them and uh, hold their hands together and make a deal so he could get their oil. The Chinese are asserting themselves on the world stage in ways we have really never seen before. It's going to be interesting to see if they do manage to 
broker some kind of ceasefire with Ukraine, or at least to put one on the table that seems rational and reasonable. Well, Ken, I don't have to tell you this, but when you look at it, America, with all its faults, is still the largest free democratic society in the world. Now, with China taking over, you've got a communist country with a poor record on human rights. I mean, they are basically the new hegemonic power in the world, aren't they? Well, they are the new hegemonic power in the world, and that is their stated goal. But their stated goal is to become the world's hegemon uh, on the 100th anniversary of the communist takeover in 2049. We are well ahead of that. The Chinese are well ahead of their goals. And again, it's because we are not stepping up to the plate here in the United States. We have a weak uh, administration. We have downgraded our military. We do not have the capability of resupplying all of those weapons that we've sent to Ukraine, we cannot fulfill the contracts that our companies have already signed with Taiwan and South Korea uh, to provide HIMARS and other weapon systems that instead are going to Ukraine. Uh, so the Chinese have this enormous industrial capability, this economy, which is now as big as ours, and a military, which is getting to be, at least in the Navy, they have more warships today than we do in the U.S. Navy. Ken, as the saying goes, elections have consequences, foreign policy has consequences, and as we look at that, that's what we're facing right now. We'll continue to keep an eye on that situation because it is very concerning. Well, let's move away from that, and let's go to Turkey. We haven't talked about them for a little while, but they do have, in the aftermath of the earthquake that happened, there's a lot going on there. President Erdogan is up for re-election and may be facing a tough re-election. Can you talk a little bit about Turkey? We haven't talked about them for a little while. Tell us what's going on there. Well, Rick, you said elections have consequences. Boy, will they ever if Erdogan goes down in this uh, election on May 14th. Uh, the polls now are showing that he is 10 points behind the opposition presidential candidate, Kemal Kirich Daroglu. Uh, Daroglu has won the support of the Kurdish People's Democratic Party, the HDP. They have that 10 percent margin of victory for him. And uh, I would just warn everybody to keep your eyes on Turkey in the next couple of weeks, because Erdogan's track record is a little bit like Putin. If he sees himself endangered at the polls and we're two months away from that election, I foresee and I think it's pretty easy to predict uh, adventurous action by Erdogan, military action by Erdogan, perhaps a provocation in Syria, perhaps attacks on Kurds in Syria, perhaps even a crackdown inside Turkey on the Kurdish parties. Remember, in one election not too many years ago, he outlawed the HDP, the Kurdish People's Democratic Party. He's entirely capable of doing that again, calling them a seditious party. So the election is not over. But if it were held today, Erdogan would go down and that would have tremendous repercussions all throughout the region. Turkey, I think, would be no longer the aggressive uh, Islamist state that it is today, but would very quickly go back to its democratic roots. I have uh, really great hope for this opposition leader, Kirij Daroglu. But as I say, it's two months away and Erdogan has got tricks up his sleeve. Well, Ken, I appreciate you helping us to keep an eye on this situation, along with all the others that you do. Remember, folks, if you'd like to know more about Ken Timmerman, go to KenTimmerman.com. There you can find out about his latest book, and the rest is history, or sign up for his newsletter. Ken, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of Prophecy Today Weekend. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Mob violence in Pakistan foiled the arrest of ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan. Police clashed with Khan's supporters outside his home for two days before the Pakistani court suspended arrest orders yesterday. Nehemiah with FMI says mob violence and Muslim extremism has infected the streets of Pakistan. And the only thing to stem the swelling tide will be changed hearts. Pray for Pakistanis to have their eyes open by the gospel. And culture affects everything from speech to behavior. And cultural clashes can break relationships. Knowing how to navigate across different cultures helps you to be an effective witness for Christ, whether on a foreign mission field or walking down the street to chat with refugee neighbors. Sometimes, before people ever get to engage with Scripture, they'll encounter Christ through believers. Find three tips for cross-cultural ministry from Wycliffe USA at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of the program where we look at the Middle East news update. We focus on Israel, but we look at the entire Middle East, and to do that, we have with us Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you as always, Rick. Uh, David, the main story, and we've talked about this week after week now, and we're going to talk about a few other things this week, but we need to check in with the judicial overhaul, the protest taking place in Israel. Can you give us a status update and what is new on this issue? Yes, Rick, there's all sorts of developments, so I can't go into most of it, but I can give you a summary of what's going on. Thursday was the third national, quote, day of disruption where the protesters against the judicial reforms uh, took to the streets. Once again, they closed the highway into Tel Aviv. Once again, the police got involved. There were stun grenades. The protesters said a car tried to run down one of the protesters uh, in that area, and uh, they made some strong statements about that. This came after President Herzog on Wednesday night delivered uh, his second national address on the issue, This time, the prime minister was still in the country, but on his way to Germany. And Rick, he laid out what he called the people's outline of a solution to the crisis of the judicial reform. And he again made some pretty dire statements. He said people think that we couldn't have a civil war, but he said we're just a few steps away from that. He said we've sunk into an abyss and we may not be able to get out. He said families are dividing over all of this and some other statements. And then he laid out this plan that basically the government, the Netanyahu government, rejected right away. 
It said it's a complete cancellation of the necessary changes in the judicial reform. They called it, this was an official statement from the government, one-sided, biased, and unacceptable. And Ben Gavir, the uh, controversial minister, police minister, said it's not an outline of the people, but an outline of Lapid and Gantz, the opposition leaders. And he repeated, uh, as many are saying on the right, that this is just an attempt to overthrow the or toss out the Netanyahu government and that uh, the protests will continue. But Netanyahu, while he was in Berlin uh, meeting with uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Thursday, he made some statements about it. He said, we realize that we can't just ram something through. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that it needs to be discussed. We've invited our opposition figures to discussions. They're the ones that are refusing to sit down and talk with us. They're insisting it be scrapped entirely first. And that that's not going to work that way. He said a lot of these reforms are needed, but he mentioned that we could go too far and that would not be good either. So he indicated once again, as he's done over several weeks, that he's open to discussions, he's open to negotiations, but the president's plan as it was presented uh, would just negate the whole process basically is what he was saying and it was rejected by him. Well, David, I think that's encouraging that we're seeing the realization that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu knows he needs to negotiate. I mean, in a position right now, he is the head of the Likud party. He has a coalition. He's center right, but he's kind of the center right now because he has farther right or religious Zionist factions in his government. And then you've got the on the other side, you've got the left. So he does realize that they do need to negotiate. And I feel like that negotiation is coming, just not time yet. These things take time to happen. Well, uh, I've I said it last week and I'll say it again. This war does certainly seem like a war of political narrative and hyperbole. And one example of that, and I bring this up because I know he was a fellow journalist that you knew and worked with, is Thomas Friedman. He wrote an article in the New York Times comparing Benjamin Netanyahu to Vladimir Putin. Yes, I did have uh, some run-ins with Tom Friedman when he was bureau chief in Jerusalem, and I was working for CBS. My book came out, my first book, Holy War for the Promised Land. He criticized it to me and to others that I was way overemphasizing the Islamic element in the conflict, Hamas and all of that. He said there will be a peace settlement and, and it'll all you know, be fine. And when the Oslo Accords were signed two years later, he said, that's it. The war's over everything's going to be great. Of course, it was Rabin and Perez, labor leaders of the left, who negotiated that with uh, Bill Clinton in the middle, a Democratic Party president, so on his side. But yes, his op-ed was crazy, as I read it. Uh, he said the uh, Netanyahu leadership style is, quote, madness. He said they thought they could pull off a quick judicial coup disguised as legal reform. He said it comes from a dictator's handbook and that it's, as you said, very similar to Vladimir Putin's style. He said uh, the defense forces are not just going to salute an Israeli dictator. So he's calling Netanyahu a dictator, which is just absurd. This judicial reform package has to go through the Knesset. It has to be voted on out of committees first, the different parts of it, and then it, then it has to go before the full Knesset three times before it could be approved, three votes 
for the final approval, and there's debate all along there. Now, Netanyahu recognizes this is a major issue and major changes, and, uh, you know, because the truth is he could just ram this through. He has a majority in the parliament right now, but he's not wanting to do that. He certainly doesn't want to see the country fall apart, the military fall apart. We had another group of reserve soldiers, hundreds of them actually, Rick, that said, they will no longer volunteer to serve in the military. If they're called up in a mandatory way, they'll serve, but otherwise they won't go to rehearsals or practices or anything like that. So it's a serious situation, and Netanyahu knows that, and Tom Friedman is just way out of line here. Uh, he's not a dictator. Israeli democracy is not about to collapse. Uh, as Netanyahu repeated again, we just need to rebalance the power division between the judicial and the legislative branches because it's gotten out of whack. And even many on the left admit that much, Rick. So, you know, they just need to sit down and talk. And uh, But it's Lapid and Gantz so far that won't do that. I certainly agree with that analysis, David, and I appreciate you giving it to us. But as we continue on, and you've told me this before, this whole situation is a large distraction for a country that has serious security concerns. And those security concerns were at the forefront this week, uh, situations in Janine and also an interesting situation from Lebanon. Well, that's right, Rick. The battles continue there very, very much. On Thursday, there was another IDF raid into Janin, as you said. The Israelis said three were killed. The Palestinians said four were killed in it. They said they were all wanted men, uh, not only Islamic Jihad, but Hamas members as well. And that, of course, created some protests from the Palestinian side. But earlier in the week, we had another incident that you mentioned that could have been disastrous. A terrorist was shot dead in a, in a car that someone else was driving near the Megiddo Junction. You know where that is, the central, is, central northern Israel, I should say, where Armageddon will take place in the future. And this uh, guy, they believe, came in from Lebanon, that he crossed the border, infiltrated. He had a suicide belt on. He had a lot of other materials with him, explosive materials, which he probably picked up from contacts in Israel, probably the driver of the car and others. He set off a roadside bomb near the Megiddo Junction or put a device down and it went off when a car came. And it was an Arab Israeli that was uh, killed in that uh, incident. So there you go. But they were on their way further south, Rick, and the thought is they were planning a major attack in the Tel Aviv area probably with the suicide belt and these other bombs that they had. And they got him, they killed him. But they do believe that Hezbollah is probably behind this. And if that attack had occurred, Rick, and Israelis had been killed, we'd probably be in a military battle right now with Hezbollah. Uh, and Hamas and Islamic Jihad probably joining in. So yes, the security situation is extremely fragile, extremely tense, and therefore these internal Israeli disruptions are, um, at the very least, not very helpful. Well, David, we only have a minute, and I might ask you to hold on through the break here as we continue to talk. We talked last week about the Saudis starting to develop a relationship with Iran and what that could mean to Israel, and many are blaming kind of U.S. apathy, U.S. disengagement from the region, but also this political chaos in Israel, which is also a danger to Israel's security, isn't it? Well, it is, you know, although I don't uh, agree with some of the comments that said the Saudis really did this, made this agreement that China bargained. 
with Iran because of the Israeli political crisis. The truth is that the Saudis and Iranians have been having back-channel talks for some months now that China has been guiding, and it was known that they were trying to settle some of their differences. But I would agree with the analysis that many have given that it was really the uh, Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden that started this when they pushed through the 2015 nuclear accord, which greatly angered the Saudis and the other Arab Gulf states, uh, made them fear that you know, Iran would get nuclear weapons, but now be able to do it much more surreptitiously and clearly. And then, of course, there were problems after Khashoggi was killed and other things. And uh, Biden seemed to be more or less snubbing the Saudis. Well, David, very interesting. Well, I've got so many questions for you, David, again, and I've had to do this recently. I'd like to ask you to stay with us through the break. Is that okay? Sure. Be glad to do it. Well, we are going to take that break right now, but when we come back, we'll have more with Dave Dolan and Sharam Hadian on Ramadan. That's all right ahead, right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you've joined for this second half hour of the program. We've already talked to Ken Timmerman. We've talked to Dave Dolan. We've got our Middle East news update, and we've got our geopolitical updates. So much information right now, and uh, we are glad for these broadcast partners that we have. We are looking at current events. So many things taking place right now we're foretold of in the scriptures, and we've talked about Ezekiel 38. We talk about Revelation 16 when it comes to China, and we talk about all these nations. The Bible says that these nations are going to be players in the end times. As we look at this, the Bible gave us that information for a reason so we would know how close we are to the rapture of the church, which is the next main event on God's calendar of end time events. Well, we held Dave Dolan over. He had more information. We wanted to, to touch on a few issues. David, thank you for coming back. A couple more things that I'd like to talk about. There was a meeting between President Assad of Syria and Vladimir Putin. Can you tell us about that meeting and what took place there? Yes, Rick, they met up uh, at the Kremlin on Wednesday. There were diplomats there from Russia, Turkey, Syria, and Iran as well. They're planning a sort of a summit of foreign ministers, the four countries. Uh, Putin said his main goal in uh, inviting Assad up was to try to repair relations between Turkey, uh, which of course is a NATO ally, and uh, Syria. 
those relations turned sour when the war began in 2011, and Turkey was doing some action up in the north, took some territory from Syria that it demanded back, and on and on. Um, what I thought was interesting that uh, Putin called them true friends, and uh, I thought it was interesting that Assad then said that expanding the Russian presence in Syria is a, quote, good thing. He said, you know, you have a naval base already in Tartus, a nearby air base, but you're welcome to more bases. And he said, we would like to see them be uh, permanent bases. And in fact, they are uh, opening up a joint base that was captured from ISIS in the north in 2017. Russia will have half of it and Syria the other half. So it just illustrates again these two countries that Isaiah 17 uh, indicated, uh, you know, would be in alliance, or I should say Ezekiel 38, but Isaiah 17 talks about Syria attacking Israel apparently in the last days in a major war following. So uh, it just brings Russia ever more closely into the picture, even as China, through its deal with uh, Iran and others, is increasing its presence, all the while the U.S. seems to be slipping further and further back. That's right, David. As we look at this, the political setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. These things are just being put into place for the end time scenario. We don't know when that will begin, but it certainly seems like it's getting closer and closer. Well, my final question, and we'll talk about this a little bit more with Sharam Hadian, but as Ramadan is coming up, one of the areas or the flashpoints that we look at is what takes place on the Temple Mount. And Hamas had some very pointed observations or uh, kind of uh, uh, lightly veiled threats uh, to Israel about Ramadan and what's going to take place there. Can you talk about that and what that means for that status on the Temple Mount there? Well, yes, Rick. Uh, not only do we have uh, terror attacks and continuing internal fights in Israel, but we have Ramadan coinciding with Passover for the second year in a row, and it'll happen uh, no no more after this for many years. That's the lunar calendars. I won't go into all that, but Ramadan begins next Wednesday, March 22nd, and ends April 21st. Passover begins April 5th and goes through the 12th. Well, of course, during Passover, uh, the Jews traditionally go up to the Temple Mount in much greater numbers. They have more freedom to do that under the rules. Uh, it's, you know, one of their major festivals where you go up to Jerusalem, etc. But, of course, it's Ramadan, and the Muslims are used to sleeping up there. Many of the young guys do on the Temple Mount and having that whole space to themselves, more or less, during Ramadan. So there's certainly going to be clashes, and as you said, Hamas and Islamic Jihad also have issued warnings saying if Israel does anything anywhere in the country, basically, there could be a response up on the Temple Mount and, you know, more trouble there. But meanwhile, the government released some statistics, Rick, during the uh, Purim Festival last week. We had 453 Israeli Jews visit the Temple Mount. Now, that's a 55% increase from last year and um, the greatest number in five years. It included Rabbi Yehuda Glick, a leading proponent of rebuilding the temple and others, but it was fairly peaceful. The police got uh, it under control to begin with, and so there were no real scuffles or anything, but it again shows the growing interest amongst especially Israeli religious Jews of uh, praying up on the Temple Mount. 
Well, David, as always, thank you so much. So many things to get to that we had to go into overtime yet again this week. Thank you so much for keeping us informed on what's going on there and giving us not only the political perspective, but the prophetic perspective. You're welcome, Rick. And again, everybody pray. We really need it. Once again, Dave, thank you so much for sticking into the second half hour with us and extending that Middle East news update. Many things taking place in the land right now. And as you said at the very end there, let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the Jewish people, pray for Israel. We are commanded to do that in Scripture. And of course, with the situation as it is right now, prayer is needed now more than ever. Well, before we get to Jimmy and Sharam Hadian as they talk about Ramadan, and again, very unique this year and won't happen again for quite a while, but Ramadan is taking place at the same time that the Jewish celebration of Passover is taking place, as well as the Christian celebration of Easter. This is a potential powder keg in the land here, and we want to learn a little bit more about Ramadan, what it means to the Islamic people, and how we should look at it, or what is our worldview of Ramadan and Islam as Christians. But before Jimmy talks to Sharam, I'd like to just let you know, if you would like to find out more about our ministry, we'd love for you to go to our website, prophecytoday.com. There you can find out more information about study materials that we offer. You could sign up for an email list and we'll send you a newsletter. We'd also love for you to look at tours that we have to Israel. Jimmy's in Israel right now, actually in Jordan, and uh, we are planning on taking several more tours this year, one in October, one in November. We are also going to take tours in February and March of next year. So we've got many tours lined up. We're going back to Israel because we feel it is the world's greatest classroom for learning not only the prophetic scriptures, but uh, looking at Israel past, present, and prophetic, studying the life of Christ, and being at that most important spot in all of the world. We'll be up on the Temple Mount. We'll be on the Mount of Olives, where Christ came, where Christ died for our sins, and where he's going to return in the future. You can find out more information, again, about the tours, about our materials, and about all the stuff we do by going to prophecytoday.com. Well, let's go now to Jimmy with Sharam Hadian. Today on today's program, we are talking about the Temple Mount. We're focusing on it because it is because of uh, Easter, Passover, and Ramadan, the three religions that are based out of the Holy Lands, if you will. So we've covered really the Jewish aspect. We've covered, uh, and we will look at the Christian aspect in a minute, but one that we haven't really touched on, I know that we have in the past, is the Islamic faith, the Muslims. And our go-to man for that is Sharam Hadian. Sharam, welcome to the program again. Jimmy, thanks for having me back on the program. Well, Sharam, I'm having you on the program because 90,000 to 150,000 worshipers on Harm al-Sharif, or as we like to refer to it, the Temple Mount, uh, I know that uh, it's it's a place of contention for sure. But before we get started, Just explain to us, because a lot of people are not familiar with what is Ramadan. Well, the significance of Ramadan within Islamic scripture is that this is, according to Muhammad, who is the uh, self-proclaimed prophet of Islam, Mm -hmm. uh, Ramadan is the time where the Quran was given. So this is the the month that the revelation was given to, to, to him of their holy book, of the book that they consider to be holy. And, of course, as a former Muslim, I don't agree with that because right. uh, we know that it is absolutely different than, than the Bible and, 
it does not have a common commonality. In fact, it denies uh, much of Christianity, including the very deity of Jesus Christ. But do, for Muslims, this is a time where they were told that they must be a, a time of prayer and fasting. So beyond the, the prayer that they do five times a day, the swam, that, that is one of the five pillars of Islam, they, they have extra prayers during the month of Ramadan because they believe that this earns them extra points. We have to understand that Islam is works-based, and it is about, um, you know, what they can do to please their, their God, Allah. But the significance, Jimmy, ultimately, is that the month of Ramadan, number one, was the, the revelation, although there is contradiction in the Quran, mm. the revelation that they believe that this word was given to him from heaven in Arabic, uh, revealing the final uh, revelation, the final God. You have to understand that Islam teaches that Christianity and Judaism, or in the order of Judaism and Christianity that came before it, were, were corrupted, mm. that the, the prophets that had come before, including Jesus, who they believe is the sixth or seventh of seven major prophets, uh, that his teaching had been corrupted by the Christians, and therefore uh, Allah, their, their God, uh, not the God of the Bible, has to send a final messenger in Muhammad. So this is their version. This is their story. One of the things about Ramadan that is not told, the West, we are told that Ramadan is a time of peace, that Ramadan is a time uh, that Muslims are, are introspective. And that may be the case for you know an average Muslim. But mm-hmm. for the Islamic world and the Islamic movement, the other significance of Ramadan is that some of the major battles that were fought advancing Islam out of the Arabic Peninsula were fought during the month of Ramadan. Mm. Uh, Muhammad fought several major battles during the month. That's the 30 days that we find ourselves in. And every night uh, they they fast from sunup to sundown, and they break that fast, what's called Eid al-Fitr. They they break the fast every night uh, at sundown. They, They eat a lot. And then they get up and they eat some more until sun up. <laughs> uh, and, and so typically, uh, kind of a running joke that we used to have in Iran was that those Muslims who were observing Ramadan uh, usually gain weight. You think if you were fasting, you'd lose weight, <laughs> but you actually gain weight because they eat so poorly, you know, because they, they're eating late before they go to bed. And that's never a good thing, right? You right. never want to eat late before they have to go to bed. So that's the general significance of Ramadan. Uh, one more thing I'd like to add, if I could, and that is I'm very concerned with the celebration of Ramadan by Christians. Mm. Uh, I think you and I, and I remember I, I used to talk to your dad about this several times, is that we now have this movement within Christianity to say, if we want to reach out to Muslims during their holy month, let's talk about how we bless Ramadan. We mm. celebrate Ramadan. Well, here's the problem. If Ramadan, the significance of Ramadan is the revelation of the Quran, and the Quran comes and it denies the Trinity, it denies the deity of Jesus, it denies that he's the son of God, because Allah, according to the Quran, does not have a son, nor does he, is he begotten, meaning he can't be a father nor a son. Um, they, of course, deny the Holy Spirit, and they deny the crucifixion and the resurrection. Surah chapter 4, 157 denies the crucifixion, says it never happened. They, of course, deny the resurrection. So my question to Christians is, how can you bless a time, a, 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 a um, holiday or a holy time for Muslims when their text, when their uh, scriptures refute 
and deny the essence, the foundation of Christianity. Mm. How can we bless that? So while we should understand it and understand why it is holy to them, why it's revered to them, uh, we should not be celebrating it, welcoming it, uh, you know, having iftar dinners in our churches for them, as we see oftentimes happening in many of the uh, lukewarm sort of mm-hmm. um, middle of the road churches. So that's the just the caveat that I want to put in there that uh, we must not get caught up in this in this deception. I think that's an excellent point, Sharam, and I'm so glad you brought that up because we do see a lot of churches today that are trying to become relevant, and by doing that, they think it's welcoming all the religions and faiths but into their congregations, into their uh, church structures, to their to their body of Christ. But really, I mean, it's a false religion by a false prophet and a false book. And I, I like the way that you brought out the inconsistencies. And folks, let me just remind you again, at least surrounding Israel, you have 220 million Arabs, Muslims that surround Israel that uh, want nothing more to wipe Israel off the face of the map, and they are lost and going to hell. And I think Sharam's ministry, and I I failed to bring this up, Sharam, you grew up in Iran. Give us your website again. Sure. Our website is uh, TILproject.com. TIL, which stands for Truth in Love, the acronym there, the word project.com. And as you know, Jimmy, we have focused uh, our ministry is twofold when it comes to Islam. Mm. One is we want to expose Islam, make sure people understand what it really is. And two, we want to make sure that we're uh, equipping Christians to properly, biblically evangelize the Muslims, because as you said from the very beginning, these uh, the, the 1.6, 1.7 billion Muslims globally, the 200 million, as you said, that are surrounding Israel, these individuals have no hope. They have no mm. salvation they are going to hell. And, and I was going to hell before Jesus Christ got a hold of my life to almost 23 years ago by the grace of God for me to come out of Islam. So, you know, I was born into a Muslim family. I studied Islam. And now, uh, as a Christian, as a pastor, we want to make sure we have a biblical understanding. So thank you for being willing to cover this, because there is so much confusion about Ramadan, about why Muslims uh, treat it with such reverence. But also there's so much confusion. By the way, there's a website that I've, I've oftentimes shared that is very interesting website. I don't know if, if it's okay if I can yes, give the, please. The, the, the handle, but it's called thereligionofpeace.com. Now, this is not promoting Islam. This is a, a website that actually tracks, particularly attacks uh, uh, from Islam against Christians and Jews. And just on their website, they track the activity of jihad, particularly during the month of Ramadan, mm. where they've tracked now between April 9th and April 15th, just in one week, 41 attacks, 197 killed, 80 injured, one suicide blast in 13 countries. Wow. Uh, so they track this uh, because we typically do see, unfortunately, an uptick of violence during the month of Ramadan. You think it'd be the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. You think it'd be a time of, again, of, 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 of love and peace for those who... Muslims would disagree with, i.e. Jews and Christians. No, no, no. It's actually a time of increase. And as I said, some of the major battles that Muhammad fought, uh, uh, including the battle when they went into Medina, from from Mecca to Mm -hmm. Medina, and established Islam in 622 A.D., 
in Medina, that's when Islam really began. That's when the Islamic calendar starts. Mm. The Islamic calendar doesn't start when Muhammad was born or when Muhammad re- received the revelation, according to him, in 601. Um, it, it really begins when they, they, they migrated the Hijra to Medina in 622. And that's uh, what people have to understand about the totality of Ramadan. So let's let's talk about this because you bring up a valid point, and one of the reasons we're focusing on this is because in the city of Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, where the first and second temple stood, well, a future third temple will stand, and then Ezekiel's temple will stand in the future where, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign from. In the Temple Mount today, Harm al-Sharif in Arabic, after their prayers on Friday, they were throwing stones, uh, they were chanting, there was a lot that was going on. One of the reasons why we're f- focusing on it. But why the struggle for Jerusalem? Well, that's a great question. And, and it's interesting, Jimmy, because I think if you ask that question of most Muslims, they wouldn't be able to answer the question. Right. Because they're taught that, number one, Jerusalem is in the Quran. It is not in the Quran. Jerusalem is never mentioned once in the Quran. Mm. The word Quds, Al-Quds, that is the word Q-U-D-S that they use for Jerusalem, is mentioned in the Hadith, which is the traditions of Muhammad, but it's not mentioned. Contrast this with the Bible that mentions Jerusalem over 820 times. So, number one, there is no scriptural importance to Jerusalem within the Quran, none whatsoever. The only reference that you, you actually find is in Surah chapter 5, where in the Quran... It says, uh, Muhammad, when Moses said to his people, oh, my people, remember the favor of Allah. Of course, they, they claim that Moses was a prophet of Allah, which we mm-hmm. know he wasn't because Allah is not God. Upon you, when he appointed among you prophets and made you possessors and gave you that which he had not given anyone among the world. They're, they're talking about the holy land. It doesn't mention Jerusalem, mm-hmm. but it's talking about the land, the, the, the territory that Abraham would have gone and conquered the Canaanites and the Moabites, and then subsequently would have been passed down to Moses and the Mosaic Law. So the Quran actually recognizes that the Holy Land belongs to who? The Jews. Mm. So most Muslims don't know this because they're taught. Now, you go, well, Sharam, where does it come from? Well, Muhammad then claims that he had a vision and that he took a miraculous, uh, this is in 621 A.D., that he had a vision and was miraculously taken to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Well, there's a problem. By the way, the word Al-Aqsa, that is part of the Temple Mount, right? So you have the Dome of the Rock. In Arabic, it is Rubat al-Shakra, right? Uh, It's the Dome of the Rock. That's the conquering aspect. Well, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, depending on how you're looking at Jerusalem, like if you're up on the the Mount of Olives, and you're looking at the Dome of the Rock— the Al-Aqsa would be towards the left, right? So it would be mm-hmm. on the left side of the Temple Mount if you're looking at the East Gate. So I'm just trying to give a reference point. Very well, good. now, that reference point, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, was, was that Jerusalem was conquered. It was never given in Scripture. The Scripture of Islam says it belongs to the Jews. It doesn't <laughs> belong to the Palestinians because there was no Palestinians in the land. So, so there's obviously some Muslims that believe that uh, the, the Muslims have no claim even to the Temple Mount. Mm. And, and I would support that view, that scripturally Islam has no claim to the Temple Mount. Scripturally Islam has no claim to Jerusalem. The reason that they are fighting for it is because once Islam conquers an area, according to Islamic text, it becomes 
Dar el-Islam, the house of Islam, not Dar al-Harb, the house of war or the house of the unbelievers. It becomes Dar al-Islam. Once they have Dar al-Islam, they believe it belongs to them and they will not give it up. So why would Muslims be fighting for Jerusalem? Why would they claim that the Palestinians, quote-unquote, that are really nothing but Arabs, Palestinians are simply, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Jordanian Arabs and Syrian Arabs, predominantly Jordanian Arabs. They have no right to the land, no scriptural right, no... uh, uh, They can say all day long, Jerusalem is a sacred city to us Muslims, but sacred is, in this context, not because their God told them it was sacred or because their text told them it was sacred, it's because they conquered it. Yes. And because of that, they will not give it up without a fight, which then takes us, and I don't want to jump ahead of you, but then it takes us into prophecy looking at kind of a Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, 39 scenario. Well, continue. Go ahead. Take us to the prophetic aspect of why this is so very important. Well, because now, because of the fact that Muslims have conquered, and by the way, they not, not only conquered, they massacred. Well, let's be very clear about that. They conquered and they massacred. And this is, the, this is the history of Islamic conquest out of the Arabic Peninsula. Uh, even Muslims can't hide their, their, their history of jihad and the hundreds of millions of people that have been killed over the 1,400-year history of Islam. Mm-hmm. But now let's get the significance. Uh, first of all, Psalm 83. As you and I talked about, I believe Psalm 83 is the beginning of the tribulation. I also believe, just like you guys do, that it's connected to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 Gog and Magog battle that is at the beginning of the tribulation. And that battle, which lists Psalm 83, every nation that is mentioned in Psalm 83 is today an Islamic nation. Mm-hmm. So that, that can't be an accident. No. And then number two, Ezekiel 38, we have the mention of Persia, the mention of Put and Kush, which is, you know, Libya, mm-hmm. Sudan area. We have the mention of Turkey three to four times. We have the mention um, of, of, of Magog, which, which I think we'd agree more than likely is Russia. Every other nation listed in Ezekiel 38 is an Islamic country as well. Right. So I think that the hatred of the Jewish people that is within the spirit that is in Islam, which is ultimately an anti-Christ spirit, according to 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 2 John 7 through 11, that speaks of the denial of Jesus, denial of the Father and the Son, well, I already said at the beginning of the interview, Islam denies Jesus as the Son of God. Islam denies God as Father, God as Holy Spirit, God as Son, denies the Trinity, denies the crucifixion, denies the resurrection. But then people claim, oh, look how much we have in common. No, yeah. there is nothing in common. Nothing in it common. It is absolutely a false God, absolutely a false scripture. Uh, the Quran and the Bible cannot have commonality because they completely differ uh, on the key things. And then one other element that Islam got wrong, major, major element that very few talk about, and that is that Muhammad claims that he was given a vision and, he, and, and, and that the vision was, was given to him in the Hadith that Abraham took his son Ishmael mm. to, well, the, the Bible says Mount Moriah, right? The Bible right. says okay. that Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. In the Hadith, according to Muhammad, and this isn't Sahih Bukhari, which means oh. it's a, they claim an authenticated hadith, that Muhammad uh, claims that the vision that was given to him was that Abraham w- took his son Ishmael, so you have the wrong son, mm. and not to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, but to Mecca, and that that's where he was going to sacrifice Ishmael on the altar, 
so they have the, the wrong. The covenants are 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 wrong. Oh wow! Uh, the, the the two covenants cannot. And yet today you have all these people claiming that Islam is Abrahamic uh, and it shares a covenant with with Christians and Jews. No, their their covenant of Islam is the opposite of the Abrahamic covenant in the in the Old Testament. It's the wrong son. It's the wrong location. It's the wrong promise because we know that Isaac was the legitimate promise keeper son of Abraham, not Ishmael. So these are all things that that are very confusing to Muslims and to Christians today. They need clarification, and we have to understand that I believe the armies that are going to come, the the massive sea, you mentioned the locusts that are going to come, the Joel 2 potential prophecy, that army is going to be predominantly an Islamic army, along with potentially Russia, and they're going to be coming in to try to conquer Jerusalem because of their view that the Jews have no right to the land, and yet it's the opposite. Uh, even their own text says the Holy Land belongs to the people of Israel, the Jews. Mm. Sharam Hadian, Truth and Love Project, TILproject.com? Yes, sir, TILproject.com for Truth and Love, for Truth and Love Ministry. Again, I'm so grateful that you're covering this so that we can speak to what's going on now and make sure we educate people uh, so that they're not uh, falling for some of the things that they're being told. Sharam, thank you so much, brother. Thanks for joining us today and giving us this understanding of Ramadan, why the Muslims want Jerusalem, the fallacies, the false prophets, the the false book, the false narrative. Thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to joining you again sometime on the radio with us. Thank you, Jimmy. It's always a blessing. God bless you guys. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Sharam. We're going to take a break right now, but we will be back with more of Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with Rick. We've been looking at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I'm in Israel, and I'm headed to Jordan. I've been in Israel for about seven to eight days. We've had a great time, beautiful weather, well, a couple days of rain. Uh, Rain is always something that's welcomed here in the land of Israel. And if you ever want to go, we would love to put you on one of our VIP trips where we come over and we take you through the land of Israel, seeing everything, the land that Jesus walked. Actually, we look at Israel past, present, and future. So not only the area where Jesus walked and the area that he served and ministered to in the Galilee, but around Israel, Israel past, Israel today, and Israel tomorrow. We would love to have you come on our trip. Today on the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, my father, we will learn how biblical Babylon, the modern-day nation of Iraq, how biblical Babylon plays into the end-of-time scenario found in God's Word. In order to do that, we must go to Revelation 17 and 18. But first, Dr. DeYoung will rehearse that at the Lord's first coming, he fulfilled the first four Jewish feasts from Leviticus 23 and how he must fulfill the last three Jewish feasts as well. We'll take a look at that today on our Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. He fulfilled the first four feasts. He was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on Feast of Pentecost, just like he said. 
in the proper day sequence as Jesus Christ fulfilled the first four feasts for the Jewish people, not for Christians, for the Jewish people. Thus he, to be consistent, must fulfill the last three feasts. He will come back to the earth. What did Matthew 24, 31 say? Take a trumpet, blow it. That's the blowing of the trumpets. That's the feast of trumpets. He rebuilds the temple. He reconstructs the city. He does all of those activities. And then he goes to the Jezreel Valley, goes over to Petra, comes back, and he gets there 10 days after the blowing of the trumpet on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. A couple of days later, what happens? Feast of Tabernacles. That's why old Peter in Matthew 17 said, let's put up three tabernacles. I see Jesus in his glory, in his kingdom. I see Moses. I see Elijah. Three tabernacles, a sukkah. That's what sukkot is. That feast called tabernacles in English. It's the remembering of how they wandered in the wilderness, living in a sukkah, a thatched hut. And that is representing in fulfilled prophecy. The kingdom period. As he fulfilled the first four, he will fulfill in the proper day sequence the last. Now just go to chapter 18. Chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. That's how Jesus Christ comes. That that is how that all plays out. And what I wanted to teach you that for was to help you realize how specific, how exact the word of God is. We can trust in the word of God because it is absolutely in conformity with everything that Jesus is going to do and and has done in the past, will do in the future. Look here in chapter 18. I told you there was one thing that was going to have to happen before all of this scenario I have this taught you will unfold. One thing. Let me just tell you something. Look up here just a moment, please. This is a seven-year period of time after the rapture of the church. In the first three and a half years, we have chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. That's a one-world religion headquartered in the city of Rome, Italy. The Antichrist will be the head of that church. The revived Roman Empire, the Ten Horns, you can read chapter 17 as well as I could read it to you now. The Ten Horns will be the revived Roman Empire. They're going to come to power, and the Antichrist will rule and reign from this false religion religion in Rome for the first three and a half years. If you've got chapter 17, you have it because I told you to go chapter 18. Look at chapter 17 and verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, that would be the revived Roman Empire, these shall hate the whore, that's the apocalyptic term for the church, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This false church at the end of three and a half years is going to be completely destroyed. Why and how does that all come about? Look at verse 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. Notice what it says. God will use human world leaders to accomplish his will. Puts it in their heart. Lost people to accomplish his will. That's chapter 17. He says, I've got a plan that's got to work out. I'm going to use these human world leaders to accomplish it. Now go to chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things, now that's not really difficult to understand, is it? 
Don't need to be a rocket scientist to get that phrase. After these things, after what? The false church, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having a great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon. The word Babylon is used three times in chapter 18. The word city is used six times. It's talking about the city of Babylon. The word great is used eight times. The great city of Babylon is focused on here in chapter 18. As you read through chapter 18, it talks about the merchants waxing rich in partnership with the Antichrist. As he finishes up his three and a half year reign over the false church in Rome, where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. The abomination of desolation takes place. Then the false prophet puts together an image of the Antichrist, which will talk and move. They put the image in the Holy of Holies. The Antichrist is going to leave. Where does he go? He goes to the literal city of Babylon. You say, wait a minute, man. Daniel chapter 5 says Babylon was destroyed. Well, it says Babylon, the empire was destroyed. It never says the city was destroyed. The city was not destroyed. Babylon, the empire was destroyed. Now, how do I know that? Well, I read some more of the Bible. I got over to the book of Ezra chapter 7. And Ezra the scribe who came to Jerusalem to reinstitute the temple practices was living in Babylon when he left to go to Jerusalem. That's 75 years after the fall of the Babylonian empire. I also read a bit of secular history. Alexander the Great, 200 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, put his Grecian kingdom in place, and he was headquartered also in the city of Babylon. He was so important to him, he opened up the Euphrates River coming out of the Persian Gulf so 500 gunships could come up and protect him. That was 200 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. I read the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, where Peter, following the command of Jesus, start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Where did Peter go? He went to Babylon. It says, all the saints in the church in Babylon salute you. You see, at that time of Peter's life, Babylon was the second most populated Jewish city in the world, second only to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Rome. He never went to Rome. And he didn't start the church in Rome. The apostle Paul did. And so Babylon means Babylon. The word of God means what it says. Now, how do I know Babylon is still alive? I watch CNN. <laughs> And I saw the cameras from those newsmen at CNN in Babylon. Do you not understand during the Iraqi situation, there was a military base in Babylon called Camp Babylon. It was there for the purpose of having a 21 nation multinational peace force. In fact, the United States government is paying millions of dollars because they messed up all the archaeological remains in Babylon. The New York Times reported that the United States is vesting, investing millions of dollars in the rebuilding of Babylon. Prime Minister Maliki, Prime Minister of Iraq, it was born and raised in Babylon. Hello, Babylon has never been destroyed. It will be destroyed. How do I know? Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and the book of Revelation in chapter 
18, verse 10, verse 17, and verse 19, it says, in one hour, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon will come to power as the economic center of the world. The merchants will wax rich. Well, how are they going to do that? Because everybody has to buy or sell from them. Well, how do we know they have to buy and sell from them? Because everybody living at that time has to have an identification mark on their forehead or the back of their hand. Book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. Is that 666? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Is that a computer chip or a tattoo? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It says it's an identification mark in order to buy or sell. Well, how in the world could even the Antichrist make the world take an identification mark on the forehead or the back of the hand to be able to buy or sell. I got an idea. How about a worldwide economic crisis? And how about the nations of the world saying, G20 in particular, the 20 top economic powers, let's put in place a governmental, economic, political, global structure. And Babylon is ready to become that. Why do you think the United States military went in there? Let me tell you a couple of things you may not know. Just before the U.S. went in, Saddam Hussein had put together a 7 million man army. That 7 million man army was called the Jerusalem Army. 2,000 of them had volunteered to be suicide bombers. Their stated purpose was to go to Jerusalem, liberate Jerusalem, and give it to the Palestinian people. I want you to know something, folks. I was there for 39 scud attacks. Judy and I weathered 39 scud attacks in Jerusalem from Saddam Hussein. We believed when he said something, he was going to do it. I want you to know this. Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of the time. He put the nation of Israel on high alert. He had the Israeli Defense Force ready to respond. He believed that Saddam was going to march across. You see, Saddam Hussein thought he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is the only one that ever defeated Jerusalem. So he thought that was his calling for life. He was ready to come. Let me tell you what I think happened. I wasn't there. So I don't know for sure, but let me tell you what I think happened. In heaven, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. In heaven, God looked out and he said, what is Saddam doing? He's going to Jerusalem with an army? Now let me check my Bible. I don't think. No, I I didn't ever write that. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. But then I said, I think God said, Jesus, come here. Let me show you something. Look what Saddam is doing. And and I think Jesus said, Father, you're going to have to deal with Saddam. He said, I know it. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know for sure. But I think Jesus might have said, what are you going to do, Father? I said, the father was looking out and he said, I think I'll get me a cowboy to send him in there and get that little weasel. Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. Hey, folks, listen to me. What did chapter 17, verse 17 say? God will use world leaders to accomplish his will. Saddam Hussein had to be removed because he was going against the plan of God. And Babylon had to come into focus, into power for the Antichrist to rule and reign from it. Petroleum engineers tell us that over in Saudi Arabia, the oil is running out. In Iran, the oil is running out. The number one and number two suppliers of oil. And under the earth, 
in Iraq is the greatest source of petroleum, of oil in the world today. Dubai is going to look like a backwater village compared to what Baghdad, Babylon will look like when they start taking the riches from that oil. They've only touched 2% of it. It will come to power. It will be the world headquarters economically. The Antichrist will rule and reign the last three and a half years. Babylon will indeed come to power in the last days to be the international headquarters for an economic, political, governmental power base on this earth to be ruled by the Antichrist. God's Word actually foretold this would be the scenario at the end of times, and the current events of the last decade have set the stage for these prophecies to be fulfilled. Next week on the broadcast, we'll see how Babylon will be destroyed. It, in fact, is the last thing to happen before the Lord's return to earth. Be sure to join us for this special study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. You can get this whole series and all the series that we do in the Legacy Series at prophecytoday.com. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. We recently talked about how an airstrike in Aleppo shut down a major airport and cut off a vast amount of earthquake aid to northern Syria. Horizons International's getting around the issue by driving aid in with Lebanese and Syrian church partners. Pierre Hosni with Horizons International says several warring factions are fighting for aid and blocking it from each other. However, the Syrian church is serving their neighbors in Jesus' name, regardless of ethnicity or religion. Pray for a spread of the gospel. And the newest member of our network battles addiction in the U.S., The Lighthouse helps men who struggle with addiction and their families by providing resources in a gospel-centered program. Along with a 30-day residential program, The Lighthouse provides community and consultation services. God's using this ministry to break the chains of addiction nationwide. They're also beginning consultation work in South Africa and Nigeria. Meet The Lighthouse at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And what a special opportunity that we have 
to help educate the body of Christ. And this week we've been focusing on that little piece of real estate in the city of Jerusalem that is so controversial, the Temple Mount. But Rick, uh, as we were looking at events today, uh, I really appreciate looking at it and looking at those political and events, the news and what's taking place and how it really Bible prophecy is almost kind of setting the stage for all of this to take place. Absolutely, it sure is. And that's basically what we do here is we look at things. One thing I was noticing today, and like you said, we focused on the Temple Mountain. Occasionally in a, in a news gathering mode, I will go to Google and and put in the, the, the phrase Temple Mount and see if there's any new stories. Mm. And often, sometimes there's only stories from a week ago. Sometimes it's even two or three weeks. I went in this week and put in the phrase Temple Mount, and I got 50 stories from yesterday <laughs> and today. And it just reminds me of Zechariah 12, 2, where it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And it certainly is a focus of the entire world right at this particular time. You know, that's an amazing statistic, Rick, and I'm so glad you did that. I look at uh, Jerusalem Post, the Times of Israel, and, and you see all this information about the clash that took place on the Temple Mount, this little piece of real estate that is very controversial. I remember so many times that you and I have been up there taking people and showing them around that little piece of real estate that's only about the size of five football fields. That is the plateau of where Herod built and extended the temple. Uh, that's where the temple, the the top of Mount Moriah, where Solomon built the first temple. Herod added on to Zerubbabel's temple, and where there will be two more future temples: the one in the tribulation period that John in Revelation chapter eleven was told to measure, and then of course that temple in the future that Jesus will build, and that's given to us as Tom Meyer told us in Ezekiel. 40 to 48. As you say, Jimmy, we've been up there so many times and we always had, uh, or at least I always had a unique feeling as we go up there. You know how important it is to us as Christians as well. I know on our tours and on our trips, we based our whole trip upon the fact that we had to get those people that we are taking to Israel, we had to get them up on the Temple Mount. It's the most important place that we go in the entire trip. It is the most holiest site, as Dad used to say, on the earth. And it really is. When you look at scripture that's why there's this battle that is taking place today it started all the way back in the garden of eden and will continue all the way until satan is defeated and the millennial kingdom is set up but uh, i agree with you uh, we would sit in line, we would get there early, we would stand, we would have to go through the uh, metal detectors, uh, no touching, men and women couldn't touch one another, you couldn't take a Bible up there. Uh, again, one of those things that were put in place to control people that would go up onto the Temple Mount. And yes, you would get a special feeling by being up there. That also reminds me when we would have our prayer up there after one of us spoke, we would always keep our eyes open because we didn't want to let them know that we were praying, but God heard our prayers from that, the holiest spot in the world. Well, uh, you know, I'd like to talk in just a second about the importance of this third temple that's going to be built up there. But I also, I wanted to take a moment to recognize Sharam Hadian and the, the valuable insight that he brings to us about why the Muslims or the Islamic world values the Temple Mount area. Yeah, you know, 
sitting today, Sharam brought out some things, and I teach on, on this all the time. You and I have talked about it. We do conferences on it. But Sharam brought out uh, some big major errors that are contained in the Quran and that are propagated by, you know, Muslim clerics, which just gives to me the fact that Islam is a false religion with a false God, a false book. And we learned today from Sharam that he's deceiving so many people and there are so many people dying for what they think is the right way. Well, my next question for you, Jimmy, and this is one thing that I think we always need to clarify because I'm not sure that everybody understands, but we have part of our ministry for so many years now has been looking at the arrangements to build the third temple. And I, I just want you to explain to our people, why is it so important that this temple be built? What's important about this process? Is this going to be the temple that Jesus Christ rules and reigns from? This temple and everything that is being done right now, the Temple Institute, people that are motivated to rebuild the temple, religious Jews uh, they're doing it because this is what God has put in place. This is what he has talked about. Daniel mentioned it in Daniel chapter 9. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew chapter 24. Paul mentioned it in Second Thessalonians. And then, of course, John was told to measure that temple that will be there in the future. But Ezekiel's temple is the one that Jesus Christ will rule and reign from. This next temple that the controversy is over, that the Jewish people are ready to build, you know, right now if they could, that the Antichrist will come on the scene. He will allow them to build that temple. He will allow them to uh, to put it up. Uh, what, however, the Dome of the Rock, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Muslims will be put off. And I believe, Rick, that that's what draws the the Islamic world to the city of Jerusalem to uh, to try to wipe it out, and that is given to us in the book of Joel. Ezekiel chapter 38, that hook that's put in that, that the jaw of that animal and draws them to the city of Jerusalem. So as we see this today, it really does give us information about the future and what's going to take place. And it is important as the body of Christ to understand how it is going to play out. But we can see as things are taking place and heating up, how how volatile this topic is. So one other question or one thing that we also like to point out, these arrangements that are being made for this temple, this temple is going to be built and stand during the tribulation and before the tribulation, the rapture of the church. So this is an event pointing towards the rapture of the church. Yes. In fact, Rick, with everything that we've seen today, and as we do this program from week to week, we really just realize how much closer we are to the rapture of the church. And that's really what Bible prophecy is used for. It's used to motivate us to live a pure and productive life as we understand the times in which we're living. And we are living in the last days. We're living uh, in, in what's happening in our world are setting up for events that take place in the tribulation period. Well, Rick, our time is gone for today. Thanks for doing all the hard work. And uh, let's just keep watching world events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, that's true, Jimmy. There's so much taking place in the world today, and that's causing us to look towards the rapture. As Dad always used to say whenever he closed out the program, let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.